How you doing? Good? All right, well, good. Following together is the title of the message this morning. We are in a series of messages on what it means really to be a Christ follower. You know, we, we talk about that. The old phrase is, oh, I'm saved, I'm saved. And somebody else says, well, I'm born again. And now the term is, well, I'm a Christ follower. Well, really, what does that mean? Well, we've been looking at that last eight or ten weeks. And next week, we're going to be closing out the series of messages on this subject. But I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2 today because it's, a, it's a, really a book. The entire book is about the subject matter that I'm preaching about today. Because the entire story of the Bible is one of God building a people who love, know, trust, and follow Him. And as we look at the Scriptures, it would be interesting to discover how many times the disciples went together somewhere. Even in the Old Testament, how the Israelites went together everywhere they went. If you recall the stories of Jesus sending out the 70, he sent them in a, in a group. 120 on the day of Pentecost were in the upper room. Jesus sent out the disciples oftentimes two by two to share the gospel. Always it seems like it was the strength of a group. Now, all of us here have providential people in our life that have contributed to our spiritual development. No one here, I would say, I don't want to say emphatically, but I can't imagine anyone here or watching this morning could say, hey, you know, I got saved all, all, all by myself. Nobody talked to me. Nobody gave me an example. I just opened up the Bible one day, and I began to read the Bible, and I got saved. God has used people in your life just like he has used you and other people's lives. I can think of a, a, my, two former pastors that were used in my life, a couple of friends that were used in my life to bring me to Jesus Christ. And so all of us have these providential relationships. And God has called us to that kind of community, and he called it the church. He says in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I know the church, just like in other generations, fall on hard times as far as the reputation. And we can look back and say, well, some of that is, um, is probably worthy. I mean, after all, there have been wars in the name of Christianity where people really weren't Christ followers. They were just members of a church. And they were involved in wars. There, there's disunity in the church. There's gossip in the church. And see, so people from the outside look and they wonder, how can you believe the same Bible? And some of you even in the same denomination believing the Bible in the same way not get together. And so the church has fallen on some difficult times. But yet, and also I, I throw in this, 86%, this is amazing, in the New York Times uh, poll, 86% of the people in America believe that you can be a good Christian and not be part of a church. Now, I don't know what they mean by a good Christian. You know, I don't know if I've ever seen one of those or not. You know, I don't know. You know, the Bible says Jesus said no one is good, not even one, just him. He's the only one that's good. But I think what they probably mean by that is that, you know, a good person and a kind of a religious person, 
a spiritual person and not go to church. But in a different poll on the New York Times, it also said two things about spirituality in the United States that are true today. Number one, there's an enormous spiritual appetite for God. Number two, there's a movement away from the church. And we can see this in this article multiplied, and they were not really taking COVID into account. But nevertheless, we don't know how we're going to come out, the church as a whole, I'm saying, on the other side of the pandemic. We just don't know. There are so many people that are watching online today. There are people watching by television. There's some people just kind of tired of doing all that too, and they're just taking an opportunity to say, you know, I think I can maybe do without church. You know, I've survived so far. No lightning bolt has come from heaven and, uh, and struck me down. And so we, we look at it. We've looked at this before, just a, a touch, saying that part of the reason why people feel that way is because we're in, in an information age. And they feel like they can get the same information online from a sermon, like what I'm preaching right now. They can watch it online and not have to worry about uh, getting dressed, getting cleaned up, and coming to church. And what they fail to do is realize that church is more than just coming for information. It's coming to have an encounter with God. And sometimes we don't do that. We just come and sit. Maybe we don't sing very much. Uh, we don't interact. We kind of listen to the music and nothing wrong with that really, but we can do that on, on television we feel like or on, online. <clears throat> and then we, we get the sermon again in a lazy boy drinking a cup of coffee. And so why come? Well, there's a failure here on our part to have a sensitive encounter with God, but also there's a failure sometimes of having a sensitive contact and interaction with other people other Christians as well. And so how do we do church? How do we really do church in the modern age? I mean, think about it. We don't see each other sometimes all week. And then we come together, we worship together, we're in a small group together, we try to get to know one another as quickly as possible, and then we'll see you next week. There, there's more to it than that. And that's why Jesus was building his church. Yet, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you of something about the church. Because of these providential relationships, because of the Word of God being preached, because of the worship being done, the place where people come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord has something to do with the church. There's people here that saying, well, I came to know Christ in vacation Bible school. Somebody else in small group. Somebody else that was a part of a church that was growing in the Lord. They were growing personally. They shared Christ with you at work or at school. And all of us here have been affected in salvation by the church. We've been affected in growth. Without the church, we just really don't grow. Because the Bible is very clear, in order to follow Christ, we must follow together. And if we're not following together, we're missing something that information really comes short of. Information from the Bible is essential, but it's not complete. We see that come, when we see that truth coming alive in other people, that's when it really begins to turn the light bulbs on. Also, the church has started more schools and more hospitals than any other entity in the United States and maybe the world. We feed more hungry people. 
We do more missions than anyone else. In fact, Jesus said, I love the church so much that I gave myself for it. He said that in the book of Ephesians. In fact, the entire book of Ephesians is really about Christian growth inside the context of church, of community. And as we open up the scripture in, in chapter 2, I want to read these verses. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Three questions. Number one, what is it? What is really the church? Why is it important? And thirdly, how do we get there? First of all, what is it? We can understand a little bit more about what it means and what it is when we begin to realize what we were. Before we came to know Christ, before we became part of the body of Christ, it says so in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now this whole idea of being a stranger and alien is an outsider. You're an outsider. You're an outsider of the commonwealth of God, of the blessings of God, of a relationship with God. It was like, it's like if you've ever been in a foreign country where you didn't know the language and you caught yourself being by yourself. You ever done that? I'm telling you, it's a weird experience. It's a helpless experience because you feel like you can't ask any questions. You're looking for someone that can speak English because you don't speak the native language. You're alone. There's nobody there to talk to. That's what an outsider really is, an outsider, an alien, a stranger. We can look in chapter three, 2, verse 12, when it's talking about, in this context, of the Jew and Gentile coming together, forming one church. We were both, the Jews were the insiders, the Gentiles were the outsiders, that's us, and we were joined together by Jesus Christ at the cross. He says this, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, number one, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, number three, to the covenants of the promise, Every promise in the Old Testament, you, were, you and I were separated from that, having no hope and without God in this world. No hope. We've talked about that in this series. Bertrand Russell saying, without God, there is no meaning to life. There's no meaning here. There's, there's, no, there's no hope here of anything else. And we've said that we search for hope. You know, the hedonist says, just get all the pleasure you can out of life. That's all the meaning there is. In fact, don't even ask me the question. I don't want to know the question. I'm just trying to be happy. The existentialist would say, well, you can't find any meaning in life because there is no God. But you defy that. And you go after meaning. And you have meaning in spite of the fact there is none. And we gave the... Uh, Illustration of the man of La Mancha who was Don Quixote who was went insane because there were no knights, but he was pretending he was a knight. Existentialism. And there's also humanism. And that is we're the God of our own life, so we just make this world a better place. For who? For somebody else. Because once we die, we're off the scene. Where you're dead, you're dead. And so we find from all this there is no meaning in life, and that's where we were. 
But look at where we are today. In verse 20, or verse 19, he says, but you are fellow citizens. Now I want you to notice the progression here. It doesn't look like it at first. But there is a tense intensity, a progression in this description. He says, first of all, you are fellow citizens. It's talking here about a kingdom. You're a part of that kingdom, the kingdom of God. He says, now with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice it's a little closer. Now you're not just part of the kingdom, you're part of the family. Then finally he says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, meaning the scriptures. That's what he's talking about. Apostles, prophets, you're built upon the scriptures, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, we'll get to the rest of it in just a moment. Just stop right there. The whole structure, we're, we're considered now a building. You say, well now, that's not intense. That's, that's worse. No, here's the thing. When you're part of the kingdom, you live with him. When you're part of a family, family, you live, he says, with him. But when you're a building, with him being the chief cornerstone, you, he lives in you. The more intense it is, and it gets down like a funnel, coming down to intensity. Now, the more... Tim Keller said, the more powerful a force that shapes you, the more you are fitted with someone who is shaped by the same force. Now, that sounds kind of like a riddle, but let me illustrate it this way. Um, back when I was younger, um, much younger, I was, uh, my dad uh, actually built houses on the side. And so uh, I would help him and he would do some things all, of, all himself. And so I know what it's like, and I've never bricked a house before. That's kind of, you know, you, you, don't, you don't put anything over brick. You have to see it, right? But he did let me lay block a little bit. And you took this mud. No, it's not real mud. It's concrete. It's, it's cement, rather. But they call it mud. And you throw it up on a, um, a block, and you've got to, you know, get, make sure you get it around the right, you know, the holes just right. You put another block on top of it, and then you level it. Now, if you don't get enough mud in there, it, it breaks the integrity of the whole structure. If you have an unlevel, then it also messes up the integrity of the whole structure. Now, some of you maybe have done this for a living before. You can do it fast. I did it so slow, my dad looked at me and said, let me just do that. And so that, that kind of thing. But you try to get it just right. You got to put a little more mud in there. You know, you got to do a little bit, take a little out. And I just didn't have the experience maybe to do that. But the, the point was with that mud in there, it was so close. You were tied together. And that's the illustration here. Back then they had rock and they had to fit this larger rock, then a smaller rock, then a medium sized rock and build the whole house up. And the integrity of it had to do with every single rock. If one was weak, it compromised the integrity of the whole building. And Jesus was saying, look, you're a building together. You're unified together with Jesus being the first cornerstone. The cornerstone, most important stone. It, it determines the size, the strength, and the shape of the entire building. And so God says, this is who you are. You are part of a kingdom, a family, and a building. And the building must have integrity. And in order to do that, we must be built up in him, banking ourselves, tying ourselves 
to the chief cornerstone. Well, what, we're, what are we called? That's who we are. We're, are, what are we called? We're called the church. All through the book of Ephesians, you can see it in chapter 5. You may read a couple of verses there in just a moment. But in chapter 5, it talks about the church. In fact, let's just read that right now. It says that in, uh, in verse 25 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's God's will for us, that we would be holy. That is, holy his and holy set apart from the rest of the world. And the same way husbands love their wives in their own bodies, who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ cherishes and loves the church, because we are members of his body. A different analogy here, body, building, same thing. We're all, the idea is that we're, we could never, ever be more fitted together and closely knit together than a building or a body. We're called the church. And I know that, again, the church kind of takes on some hard, hard hits. Obviously, Satan is against the church. He's going to attack the church in any form and any way he can. And yet, we need it. Remember the story, the uh, movie Castaway? Soren Tom Hanks. He got a ship, a plane wrecked on a deserted island, had no one to talk to. He immediately adopted Wilson as his friend. And if you remember the movie, Wilson was a soccer ball that washed up from that plane crash. And he got so close to Wilson over those years, talking to that soccer ball, that when he was out in the ocean trying to find a ship to save him, Wilson, he woke up and Wilson was all over here he was getting gone, and he went after him. He risked his life to save Wilson's, well, I can't say his life, but to save Wilson as his friend because we need one another so badly. Now, it's, it's difficult today. I'm not saying that it's not. People say, well, you know, I go to church, I go to church, I just can't, I can't, you know, it just doesn't happen to me that I, I gain this community that I want. You know, back when we were in high school, I don't know about you, whatever size school you were in, it was easy to make friends. I mean, you, you didn't have to be so intentional about it, I guess is what I'm saying. They went through the halls, you had the classes with the same people. If you were one of those homerooms in alphabetical order, maybe you had classes in homeroom with the same people. Then when you got to college, maybe you joined a club or, or something, or you went Baptist Student Union, or even a fraternity or sorority. I mean, it was just kind of natural. Then you get out of college, and suddenly it's not so easy. If you haven't met your spouse yet, it becomes a little challenging. If you, maybe your friends are going somewhere else, and now you've got a whole new job, it becomes more challenging. Why is that? Well, it's just not, not natural anymore. I was in India uh, several years ago. And uh, when you walk through the slum areas of India, they just got little tents up. 
That's all I have. Sometimes abandoned concrete block building that's maybe 12 by 12. They were so close to one another that it was, it was just a community. You walk out your door and there's five or six people there. The same five or six people all the time. The same 10 people as you walk through. The same 100 or 1,000 people. The same ones. Community is a lot easier, but what do we do? We, we come home. We have a garage. We pull in the garage. We quickly close the door. I mean, there are snakes here in Florida, you know. You, you quickly close the door, and then you, instead of sitting on the front porch the way Americans used to do, we go to the back. And if we go outside, we're in the back. So it's not natural, so what, what do we need to do? It has to be intentional. It must be intentional. So why is that so important? Well, secondly, this morning, is that I want to look at it again a little bit closer at the importance of it. Why is it important? In verse 21, it says, Whom the whole structure, the building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, we are the dwelling place of God now. We don't have an Old Testament, Old Testament temple built with hands. We are the temple, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. And he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's saying, look, it's like this. You are the dwelling place of God. You're the temple. But the church as a whole, all across the world, is, is like one temple. And the local body of believers, like one temple. And your own body, like one temple. It's all the temple of the Lord. Notice it says, uh, built up. That's happening right now. God's building up right now, not just a number, but also building you up. But yet he is doing it in number. There's still people getting saved all over the world. While America, in some ways, the American public has turned their back on a, a, a decisive relationship with God in many, many cases, there's revival in different places going all over the world. People are still being saved. It's still being built up. And also, it means us being built up as well. Look at the 120 on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were going out in groups. It's always together. In fact, let me remind you of one of the most important illustrations of this. That is the Trinity of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Long before God had a relationship with you or I, or even with Adam and Eve, he had a relationship with himself. We are built for community. As we look, we ask ourselves the question, why are we not unified. And it's not just a matter of not getting along. We get along here in our church. But why is it that some people feel like they can scatter from the church and only come every now and then? Why is it that uh, some people, at least across Christendom, you have churches that disagree with one another so strongly they divide and split? Why is all these things happening? It's probably, if I can just draw a conclusion from this, we are not building our lives on the chief cornerstone. And therefore, even though we may be even fitted together in some churches, we're fitted together the wrong way. There is no guidance to it at all. Maybe uh, some churches are ruled by world culture. Well, we just feel like the Bible needs to be interpreted by culture, they say. Which culture? Which one? I mean, there's a Western culture that we have. There's an Eastern culture um, across the ocean. And there's other cultures that we, we see all throughout the world 
and tribes and, and places where the gospel has not even been preached. There may be hundreds, even thousands of cultures, even right now, much less what's going on down through the centuries. Which culture? Somebody else, well, it's by politics. Whatever your politics are, right, left, same thing, in the sense that, no, we get our directive from politics. I've had people to tell me that they're actually doing this, which has something to do with politics, is part of the gospel. Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel means good news, not divisive news. It doesn't mean bad news. It doesn't even mean the Christian life. Now, I know it's come to mean that in some circles, but the gospel according to the Bible is us being loved by God, but sinners separated from God. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died on the cross for our sins, resurrected on the third day, and if we trust him, as our personal Savior and Lord, it is good news as the Holy Spirit comes in to live inside of our life, inside of our heart, makes us a new person, guarantees us a place of heaven. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what we need to rally around. People rally around their own career, their friends. And we find this, that there is no, things change every day and there is no basis for unity at all, except for one thing, and that is what God says in his word, the chief cornerstone. It's crucial, folks. Jesus spent 21 verses. I just want to look at this real quickly. Jesus spent 21, I can't read all these verses, and I'm not, but in John chapter 17, get the picture. Jesus is about to die on the cross. He's about to go to the cross, and now he's ending the time before he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I, I picture in my heart that if they've gone through the, the valley of Kid, the Kidron Valley with all the sacrifices of the Passover, and he's teaching them about abiding in him, teaching them about, hey, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you all things. Now he pauses. He bows his head, looks up to heaven, and begins to pray. And the disciples are hearing this prayer. And he, first of all, in the first five verses, prays for himself as you want to do. But then he spends the next 21 verses praying for the unity of the body. The last thing that he taught the disciples, the unity of the body, not just to get along, but to have a mission for him. It says here in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they received them and have come to know the truth that you sent me. I am praying for them. Listen to this. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now he says, I'm praying for them. He first, he's praying for the disciples, but in the end of the chapter, he says, not just these, but everybody that's going to come to know you. He's praying for you. He says, not the world. Now, some people will say, oh, he's not talking about people here. Well, it's not that, I think Jesus maybe is talking about people. But what he's saying is this, at this time, for this moment, is so crucial, so important, that I'm not going to be praying for 
those who don't know me, I've got to specifically pray for those who are following me. It's not that he's never going to pray for the world. He doesn't ask us. He asks us to pray for the world. But at this moment, so crucial, I'm praying God for these right in front of me. Right in front of me. I pray for them. How crucial is it? The Bible tells us that we can be shaped by many things. In fact, the Western, I mentioned a few moments ago, there's a Western philosophy. And the Western philosophy, the world cultural view, you belong to yourself. The Eastern is that you belong to your family. Your family makes decisions for you, not you. You belong to your family. But the biblical worldview is that you belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Which brings me to the next thing, it's your testimony. A testimony. Jesus said in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He's glorified in us because what, what? We, we're saved. We're forgiven of all of our sins. The cross has, and the resurrection has been applied to our life. Our life has changed and the world looks and says, this is like window dressing. Remember those illustrations? Hey, I'm, I'm walking down the street. I'm looking into the window and I'm saying, whoa, I wouldn't mind that outfit. Or you're going to a movie and it has all the coming attractions. That's what we are. Jesus said, you're going to glorify me to the world because the world's going to look at you and say, there's something different there. I want that. I want that. I want what you have. I want, I want to be able to handle adversity. I want answers to prayer. I want the things that you have. And that's the church. It's like Moses. I, I think we, yeah, part of this series was about Moses and the burning bush. If you remember that just a few weeks ago. One, one commentator said this. It's like, it's like Moses turned around and said the bush is burning. Yet, that's not uncommon. The bush is burning and it, it doesn't go out. We are like the burning bush. Why? We are the burning bushes in the New Testament. We are the burning bushes today because as people look at our life, they are look at our life and say, it's unexplainable. Moses could not explain why the bush was burning and was not being burned up. People should look at our lives and say, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. This is weird. This is strange. I can't explain your life. We are the testimony of the Lord in the world, and we are, yes, a unified voice. He says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one, even as we are one. In Ephesians 2, I won't take time to read those verses, but in 13 through 16, he says the same thing. The Gentiles now and the Jews are coming together for, in the power of God. Jews and Gentiles, one body. A body together, resulting in one army. That's also an analogy in the Bible, illustration. Taking the gospel to the rest of the world. As Jesus said, as I have been sent... So I am sending you. So how do we get there? In closing, in verse 22, he says, in him. That's how you get there. You get there by being in him, by being in Christ. 
He says, by the dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. As the Spirit of God comes to dwell inside you and the church, and He indwells us, and we become that, that tightly knit building that becomes an army for the cause of Christ. How do we get there? Well, we get there by being saved, by becoming a Christ follower, by inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life. Ephesians 2.5, early in this chapter, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you are saved. Have you, do you, are you a Christ follower today? We've been going through this series for 10, 11 weeks now. Are you a Christ follower? Have you, have you had that victory in your life where all of your sins have been forgiven and Jesus Christ comes to live inside of your life? If you have, you go to the next step, which is baptism. Baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is also a picture of the fact that I died to the old way of life. I was raised to walk in a new way of life. It's our testimony. It's our testimony. Back in my last church, this was years ago, but back in my last church, we had people from Romania and Russia that had escaped. Back in the 80s, they had escaped persecution from prison in order to come to America, and uh, actually they were working for us. They were, they were you know, we, we'd given them, their family a job. They had other jobs as well. They were just trying to get by as best they could, uh, being in a new country, hardly understanding the language. But the young people understood the language a little bit, and we were able to confer with them, and they would tell us, the teenagers would tell us, oh, if you're in Russia, if you're in Russia and Romania, communist countries, if you just say, I'm a Christian, not a big deal. But if you get baptized, then you lose your job, you become followed around. If you preach the gospel, you're thrown into prison. Baptism, why? Because it tells the world you're serious about the decision you've made. That you're just not simply doing the easy way out. You're taking a bold stand declaring your faith and identification with Jesus Christ. Then the third step is, is church membership, folks. Just making a commitment. I'm declaring myself, I'm going to get involved in this body of Christ. I'm going to look for the Spirit of God to fill me through this body of Christ, to grow me through this body of Christ, to have a ministry in this body of Christ, to have a commitment to say, if you pour your life into me, church, I'm pouring myself right back into you. You can count on me. And finally, small groups. Being part of those providential relationships. Because you're gonna, God is gonna, God's gonna use people in your life. God's gonna use your friends in your life to make a difference in your life. Remember the story of C.S. Lewis and the two friends, and they met every week and talked about Bible stuff and world events, and they were getting to know, they knew one another like, like closer than brothers. One of them died. And after all the grief was done, he says, Well, at least I'm gonna have Charles, my other friend. I'll get more out of Charles than I got before. And he found out after a few weeks that was not the case because his other friend brought out things in Charles that he could not bring out. So he got less of Charles. You surround yourself with help. You surround yourself with mutual support, as Ecclesiastes says, and mutual encouragement and mutual effort together. And that makes a difference in your life in those small groups. Providential relationships in your life, but you can be 
a providential relation, a relation to someone else as well. Who in your life can you think, wow, if they were to get up and give a testimony about how they came to know Jesus, I would be in that story. I would be there because I shared Christ with them I, or I brought them to church or I helped them along the way understand the gospel. Providential relationships, not only in your life, but also you in someone else's life as well. Boy, isn't that great? Isn't Jesus wonderful? That God would, boy, he would just count us. How in the world can you understand that? How can you put your arms around that? That God would count us, be part of his body. That he's the head and we're the body. Part of a building closely, closely fit together. A family, part of his kingdom. And part of making a difference in the lives of other people. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Are you part of that church? First by salvation, the universal church, they call it, worldwide, because you have received Christ. And then also part of a local body where you say, well, I'm just not coming. I'm part. I'm part of that body. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning... I want to challenge you, first of all, if you've never received Christ, or you're not absolutely certain right now that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. Now is the time to do that. You, you don't want, why, why would you put that off when God is, following God is the greatest thing in the world? And you never know how eternity is going to come about, how eternity is going to treat you as far as when you're going to die. You don't know that. So why would you ever put that off? I want to pray a prayer with you, and you can pray along with me, whether you're at home or right here, inviting Jesus Christ into your life, nailing that down once and for all, that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Pray with me now. God, we, I thank you so much that Jesus was sent to die on the cross for me. I open up my heart's door. I ask you to come in. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to grow with you. Help me to become part of the body so I can make a difference. And you can make that great difference in my life. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, there may be somebody here that says, you know, I need to be part of the body of Christ. Or I need to be baptized. Or I need to join a small group. And right now, I want you to pray and just say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you, never mind what the, the pastor wants, but I, 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 must, I must weigh heavily what he said because it came right out of the Bible. So what do you want me to do? God, would you guide us? Would you guide us right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.